Jokerman podcast. I'm Evan. I'm Ian. And we are babies once more. Once more, yes. we are we are at level zero. We are children. We have Benjamin buttoned our way <laughs> back to the. We've grown older temporally, and yet we have we have aged into just just new newborn babes. Our skin is soft and supple. Our cheeks are rosy, we're fat and tubby, and we're rolling around in our own shit. And we don't know anything about don't Lou know Reed or John Cale. Yeah, welcome to Jokerman Podcast, a podcast about Lou Reed and John Cale. Yeah, Jokerman, Lou and John, as we've been calling it. Here we are, at long last. And we have nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> what, what more is there to say? Well, you know. Well, let's uh, just start... Uh, gee, you know, it's hard to know how to start this, but I suppose we can just give a little bit of a context. Um, we started this podcast with the intention of talking about Bob Dylan initially. We went and did that. We did it for two years. Two years. We went ahead and did every nook and cranny of Bob Dylan's discography, (laughs) his career, his films, his music videos, his writing, and... We have found ourselves on the other side, uh, not without a plan, because there are, it turns out, other musicians. Mm -hmm. Many don't know this, but there are other people who have recorded music. Some of it's quite good, in fact. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, we we decided to do Lou Reed and John Cale, specifically both of these artists in tandem. This was an evolution. This was an evolution from where we were at one point during the show because I think we, I mean, we even referenced it a bunch during the, the earlier days of the show. Like, oh, we're going to do Jokerman 2 is going to be Lou. Over time, I think we've we've kind of come around on the idea of Lou and John together as sort of, uh, you know, sort of fire and ice twin flame kind of uh, personalities throughout their careers. Do you have any more to say about that? Um, yeah, Sub-Zero and Scorpion. Uh-huh. Um, exactly. you know, Goku uh, and Vegeta. Uh, gee, what's another? Batman s- and the Joker. Batman and the Joker. Uh, Batman and Robin. <laughs> and Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's more like that, the dynamic yeah. at times. This, this is a, to say that John Cale's solo career is not really talked about as much as it ought to be. Lou Reed's solo career, not talked about as much as it ought to be. Uh, and we've had, I've had a public beef with at least one. Oh, God, uh, please. Well, are we already doing this in the first five well, minutes? Well, we can just sort of, <laughs> as an example, you know, it's like the, the way that, you know, just like how we started Jokerman 1.0, Jokerman Bob, mm-hmm. 
with a, a sort of diatribe, a screed about how everybody knows the classic albums. Uh, you know, replace Blonde on Blonde here with uh, Transformer. Transformer. With, with uh, Velvet Underground and Nico. With, right. um, with even Street Hassle. You know, as if, in, there's some people who just don't go past that. You know, they, right. they look at Lou Reed's later stuff and, uh, you know, it, people think, okay, the last thing he did was a joke. It was Lulu with Metallica. What a, what a disgrace. What a bad thing to end on is what they say. Infamous 1.0 rating from a certain website that we're not going to name. I'm just going to jump in right here and say, we're not going to give it a 1.0. <laughs> I'm going to spoil that. I don't, I'm not going to say what, we're, what exactly we think about it, but uh, I, I have my feelings about what that record is, what it means, and I think that you do too, Ian. To, mm-hmm. And uh, what it means is um, far from being a, a, a going out with a whimper I think it's a it's a bang, you know. This is a absolutely a major. It's Lou Reed's rough and rowdy ways. Yeah, it's it's the culmination of a, a life's work uh, toward a type of project that he only could have done with that much experience freighted within him. And uh, so I'll stop and that talking only about could have <laughs> ever been done by. The one man Lou Reed also. But yes, yes. we can. Uh, th- that's going to serve as sort of our North Star. That's the that's the Z. Uh, we're at point A right now. That's point Z. That's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that we're going to be working towards over these next however many months. As for John Cale, you could talk a lot about his early records and never <laughs> come across uh, someone who's like a, 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 a hopeless fanboy for just the early stuff. Because if you right. like John Cale, you probably like John Cale. And I get the feeling that not enough people like John Cale just because they don't know John Cale enough. Certainly doesn't have the same level of cultural cachet as Lou does. And there is a reason, you know, good reason for that. Obviously, Lou is just such an iconic kind of presence, Um, you know, his his image, what he stands for. You know, he's almost like a, um, you know, he's larger than life figure. And John doesn't have that same element to him. But when you look at his output... Uh, you know, over the course of his career, it's been just as long, even longer than Lou's at this point. John is still alive and working. He's touring this summer uh, over in the UK, I think. God um, bless. And has has made uh, just as many weird-ass, hard-left turns, uh, veering back in the direction of just, like, pure candy pop, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, orchestral music, a ton of... Um, uh, soundtracks for movies and stuff he's 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 done it all single he's done it all and he comes from a a perspective that is uh completely fascinating and i i just want to if we can speed run really quickly like what the velvet underground means you're the one with the uh the books over there (laughs) well uh yeah i have a couple books but um you know (laughs) just off the top of the dome the velvet underground is something that only happens because john kale uh, a man, a, a prodigy in the avant-garde uh, cl- and neoclassical uh, scene in right. in New York, and he's coming from Wales, uh, dives headfirst into full-on avant-garde composition. <laughs> rock and roll music, you know, yeah. discovers that rock and roll music is actually um, 
it's actually kind of interesting. Like someone it's whose brain works totally backwards is like most people <laughs> go so far, uh, you know, they start with rock and roll and then they go, oh, maybe this is not so interesting. Maybe I can get more experimental and more experimental and more experimental. And then you're making stuff that uh, is uh, just, you know, just a sound, just a noise. Then you're making metal machine music. Then you're making, yeah, we're not getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> not, nothing against noise music, but just like it's more impressive when you see that uh, Picasso can paint anything he wants pretty well, right? but chooses not to in various ways, it's, that's the sort of what we have here with John Cale, someone who starts at the outer reaches of musical thought and then understands that actually this thing that everyone's listening to on the radio has something to it. It's got something going for it. There's something about this obviously appealing music <laughs> that is uh, kind of interesting. So, <laughs> um, that, that maybe there's a reason people love to hear this, but the reasons John Cale loves rock and roll are maybe not the reasons you or I do. Uh, but he and Lou Reed, when they teamed up, they actually invented ways of, of creating rock and roll, ways of listening to rock and roll that um, didn't exist before. By appreciating it from this uh, strange, askance perspective, they right. invented what we understand as modern rock and roll music uh, to a huge degree. Bob Dylan is the who's the mole. And they, they are the next ones. They did take it from where Bob, he showed the template. Everyone was so mad that Bob Dylan didn't keep running with that thing that he invented in the mid-60s. And everyone was so scandalized that he would backpedal, as so they thought, and make uh, country crooner music. But the Velvet Underground comes around and they see that thing that he did and they jump right on that right yeah it, there's no coincidence i think or, or maybe it is a coincidence but also maybe it is holy providence to some degree that blonde on blonde comes out in 1966 the very next year the torch of this thrilling cutting edge blow your mind eyes popping out of your sockets kind of music bob bob sets it down he goes off and does his thing see the last 180 episodes of this podcast if you want more on that uh, and that very next year, 1967, Velvet Underground and Nico comes out. Shiny, shiny. 68, White Light, White Heat. Two business sucking on the ding dong. Business sucking on my ding dong. 69. Obviously, the third record. One, two, three. If you close the door, the night could last forever. Seventy loaded. Sixty-nine. 
to, obviously, without John. Um, but it's it's really a seamless kind of transition, I think, from 65 Bob, bringing it all back home, Highway 61, 66, Blonde on Blonde, right into the Velvets. You know, it's, it's, it's like a relay race, basically. Bob is handing the baton off to John and Lou. Uh, really, almost literally, Tom Wilson, I, I'm ashamed to say, maybe, I just discovered this today, but Tom Wilson, the producer of Bringing It All Back Home and Rolling Stone, did some production work on the first VU record, Velvet Underground and Nico, and then he was just the producer for White Light, White Heat. So that's just such a beautiful, kind of perfect, seamless transition from Jokerman 1.0 subject to Jokerman 2. Like, that is, it, it just makes sense, right, to, to take that step from Bob into Lou and John. Uh, for us and musically speaking. Absolutely. And uh, of course, we uh, know, uh, having listened uh, to a little bit of this new release uh, this, of, of earliest demos by Lou Reed and John Cale, that the um, coming out on Light in the Attic Records. Mm-hmm. Next month. One of the uh, takeaways from that is uh, in 1965, those two guys were sitting down uh, I imagine they're sitting down. It sounds like they're sitting on the floor, right? Uh, strumming guitars, honking on the harp, playing "I'm Waiting for the Man," this sort of a a, a country folk style. I'm waiting for the man. Words and music, Lou Reed. I'm waiting for the man. Twenty six dollars in my hand. Up to Lexington, one, two, five. Feel sick and dirty, more dead than alive. Uh, honestly, somewhat Dylan esque, to use the term. Absolutely, Dylan-esque is what I'm saying. I mean, they're they're going from that point. You know, they haven't yet added the fire and brimstone of, of what the Velvet Underground would do. But lyrically, what he's what they're doing is carrying that um, that adult sensibility that Dylan brings to rock and roll music. Truly, bringing real poetry, right. adult poetry. I don't know what that means. You know. Uh, as opposed to children's poetry. <laughs> hard, erotic poems, you know. He's bringing mm-hmm. rated X. Full hole. Uh, see the whole shaft. Just, yeah. <laughs> no pixelation. Nothing pixelated, okay? So then what, what Lou Reed does is, is he says, um, you know, um, the, the production values in this arty porn that we're watching, uh, you know, they're really great and it's very cool. Um, but I think it should be a little more straightforward i i actually just i i don't really care for all of this uh fog Mm -hmm. that's coming in i don't i don't need all of these bells and whistles let's just get straight to to the the fucking fucking, you know (laughs) and john kale is sitting there going that's very interesting that's very interesting see what i was doing with drone (laughs) with making drones with lamont young we could uh yeah we could do that see i'm still working on my john you're gonna get to workshop that You've got uh, basically Lou just uh, jumping in with I'm Waiting for the Man, a song that, is, that pulls no punches at all, is just brutally funny and straightforward and uh, real. And at his side is somebody who is basically a, a, a musical Picasso, can do anything that Lou's doing rock and roll wise. 
and it's all new to him too and exciting to him. But on top of that, he can do things that no one else can do. Yeah. And no one else in the avant-garde would think to do because he's sitting there entranced by rock and roll music Mm -hmm. coming from just working, like literally probably is walking over to Lou's place from uh, talking to him with John Cage. Right. Yeah. A little bit similar to, you know, Bob after having done just the most spectacular kind of virtuosic poetry you can imagine early in his career. Then you take that brain and you apply it to just the simplest straightforward love song. Like I threw it all away. Like there's something profound about that. John is the same sort of thing from like a technical perspective. Like he's a, like a musical polymath, like prodigy, like just like one of the most talented kind of um, musical thinkers, like on a theory level uh, that you can imagine. And he's using all of that massive brain power to play just like, you know, good time rock and roll, you know, CDG core music. Not just on a technical level, because really what he is is a poet, uh, and, you know, literally a poet. He wrote poems. Well, he's got and, that on top um, of it as well, as we're going to talk yeah, about today. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's an absolute poet of sound, and Lou Reed is just an absolute poet, a poet, just a straight up, can write a song in a flash, and it's going to be right in your face, and it's going to be uncensored, it's going to be in your face, it's going to be in your face, uncensored. <laughs> You're getting it all in your face. Right, You're getting it in your hair. We're getting, okay. <laughs> I'm Stop you right there. <laughs> <laughs> See, all right, what you're going to notice that is that this season, uh, this series, rather, mm-hmm. of Jokerman podcasts is, is, I think we should probably put explicit on every episode. It's Jokerman uncensored. No, no, no. It's the explicit thing. That doesn't, that doesn't get us anything. We don't gain anything from doing that. So, Oh, and, and never mind. Yeah. Play it for your children. It will be explicit, but yeah, just, uh, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't be upset when it doesn't say that Evan's going to be talking about cum shots on the episodes. Let's start. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about what we're here to talk about, right? So we'll, we'll yeah. listen, we're going to talk about the entire Velvet's canon. We're going to talk about everyone in the orbit. We're going to talk about Lou and John, Sterling, Mo, Nico, you know, uh, Jonathan Richman, Brian Eno, the whole wide world, even more beyond that. Uh, so we're going to Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol, exactly. We're going to um, the factory. Tw- twiggy. Uh, we're going to backfill. Maybe not Twiggy. Maybe Twiggy. Um, Julian Schnabel. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're just going to talk about everything. We could spend three hours just kind of spinning our wheels right now and just riffing on the history of the Velvets. But uh, for our purposes here today, we're starting with the first record in their solo c- careers, John and Lou's, from a temporal perspective, uh, Vintage Violence 1970. Suffice it to say, Velvets. Put out the Velvet Underground and Nico, 1967, White Light, White Heat, 68. Lou and John have a little bit of a tension between the two of them. Very different artistic impulses. Also, they both um, dated Nico, and then that made up something well, to do with it. Yeah. Um, and so uh, eventually, post uh, White Light, White Heat, John is, well... He gets kicked the fuck out of the band. Lou kicks him out <laughs> of the band. He's kicked out. Uh, sort of a dick move from Lou, but you know, again, that's part of what uh, makes these two such compelling forces together. Yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about that too. A lot to say, yeah. Anyways, John strikes out on his own, does some production, produces a bunch of Nico, so produces Chelsea Girl, produces the next couple Nico solo records as well, and then come 1970. <laughs> Looking for the break of 
Hello there. <laughs> um, that's a perfect way to start uh, 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 your first record, uh, your first solo release, John. First song, first solo record. Hello there. He's just, you know, he's waving. This, the sound of this song is just so great. The sound of this whole record is so great. It's just full out, just, uh, I, I can't, I can't. The richness of it, just like the completeness that you get with this, it's it's funny that he wasn't so confident at this time, uh, yeah. but he wasn't. You know, I think he played like a ha- he refused to tour this record, Vintage Violence, which is what we're talking about. Right. Um, you know, he didn't. Pl- he played but like one gig. Um, I think actually Pink Floyd was also on the bill at that gig. Really? Yeah. Um, I have it somewhere in- here in in my tome. But uh, he was uh, not so uh, ready personally to to right. jump into this, and yet um, this record, which was apparently sort of just an exercise in pop songwriting, um, in not being uh, avant garde, right? Um, you know, it comes across. It's like it's that thing, you know, where like this exercise I made up. Where you try to write a, a Beatles song. Is that an exercise that you've made up? Well, yeah. The, the exercise is if you try to write a Beatles song, you'll not write one. It's not going to sound like the Beatles. But it might right. bring out something in you that's like, well, I want it to be good. I want it to be like, I want it to be, I want it to be, I want to do it like, you know, it, you try. Sure. It, it brings out this uh, idea of um, connecting getting synapses firing, trying to do mm-hmm. that thing that is living pop music. up to expectations. Yeah. Firing on all cylinders in a pop music way. Right. Uh, and you're going to end up doing it your own way, uh, inevitably. And I think that John Cale here, he's, he's just going, well, I've been listening to all these rock songs, rock and roll music and pop songs. And what if I did that? Might as well make some myself. He, he goes ahead and he makes them and, uh, he does not, uh, do anything else that would be required of a pop record to succeed. Yeah. The title, the cover, the tagline, which was like, it's been bleeding a long time or something <laughs> like this, uh, is uh, just uh, basically doomed from the start uh, to not make a splash. And yet <laughs> uh, it, it is this record we have, Vintage Violence, uh, which you can go ahead and listen to any time nowadays and uh, just find 11 songs that are um, great songs, great pop songs. Yeah. It's a perfect, uh, perfect little document. I mean, what's so, what's so funny about Vintage Violence is that, you know, John, the, the, the story goes, you know, the, the lore goes, the myth goes, that John was, you know, ushered out of the Velvet Underground because Lou thought he was just too wild. He was, his, his creative impulses were too out there. He was not going to be able to, you well, know... distracting. Uh, 
Yeah, he was not going to really vibe with the band as Lou was trying to take it in more of a commercial direction, as you see on record yeah, three and four. Which is so Bellas. funny. You, know, you don't necessarily think of Lou Reed as that guy, but at that moment in time, he pulled a Mike Love. Yeah, exactly. And and so what's so funny about Vintage Violence is that like this this sounds just like a straight up like rock and roll pop record from from John Cale right off the bat, and it's thirty five minutes long. It's eleven uh, it's eleven songs. It's just like it's so. You know, you expect, and and really we will see with records two and three from John, which we'll get to uh, shortly here, uh, you expect something out of left field from him uh, as, you know, as someone, as as folks who are trained in just kind of pop and rock music, you and I. Um, I'm, I don't think Lou was worried that it was getting too wild. I think he was worried that John was really good at doing was this. Was going to upstage him. Exactly. He's looking a little too good. He's uh, living with Nico around the time. Uh, Lou had just sort of had an acrimonious split, a brief affair with her. Getting a little jealous. What's the opposite of bromance? Yeah. Um, Brovorce. <laughs> <laughs> Between Lou and John. You get a, you get the feeling when you put the needle down on vintage violence that, gee, like maybe a, one band couldn't have all this right. power. Which makes sense, right? Because who does Lou bring in after John? It's our friend Doug Ewell. We'll have plenty to say about old Doug at some points. But clearly just like just like a hired gun, just like a, a, a paper pusher, kind of like completely unremarkable talent who really serves an important role in the Velvets. And again, let's not even touch that right now. <laughs> to, we'll some, to some... It, uh, you know, we'll get there. No, definitely. Um, but, yeah. but but clearly not the kind of just like generational kind of brilliant seeing, you know, galaxy brain kind of thing that John is bringing to the band. Um, and um, and so it's so great to see him, to see John just kind of able to control everything himself, command everything himself, and just immediately right off the bat come out with something so effortless and easy and beautiful to listen to as encompassed by the first song, Hello There, which we still haven't talked about 30 minutes into the episode. (laughs) No, no, Hello There is kind of like, I would say it's kind of like a um, a honky-tonk, it's like an abstract honky-tonk vibe. I mean, not only abstract in the lyrics, really, but the the approach is, um, I don't know. For me, one of the most thrilling things in music in general is when you know somebody can do something else, you know that they can do more. So right. when they do less, it's a, it's so cool because you know that they're like, when they pull out the stops, like you're going to get reminded of just how vast that range is. Yeah, exactly. That's it's what Bob you get doing, with Bob. It all yeah, away. Exactly. We're not going to be able to not talk about Bob, you know, because I saw him last night at Santa Barbara Bowl. The whole, you know, it's the, how many shows have I seen of the, of the, rough and of rowdy. the rough and rowdy tour? I think you've seen, you've seen one more than I have at this point. You've seen six and I've seen five or I've seen five and you've seen, or no, something like that. Yeah. Cause you saw four plus the two last fall. Yeah. So you've seen you seen know, six. I went with two friends who had not seen any of that. And like, you know, I, it, I've seen a lot of it, but I've been excited every time. And something that I noticed on the latest viewing of a, one of these great shows it's just really picking up on the deliberate choice to do those old songs that are a little bit pat, a little bit like flatter. You know, they, right. they, they just don't have that thing that the songs on Rough and Rowdy have. Very different feel than Rough and Rowdy. They just don't go there. You know, the songs like uh, like Black Rider is a song. It just puts those songs in such sharp relief that they are so 
um, tough and the scope is so huge and they are so um, committed to being about everything all at once and hard. And then these songs, you know, uh, those other songs like, you know, I'll be your baby tonight. This is kind of like that, but it's the same feeling watching that Bob watching 81 year old Bob do I'll be your baby tonight, knowing he's going to do black rider or will have have just done it, whatever the order is. It's like listening to this, listening to hello there for me right now. It's kind of like that. It's this sort of like, think about, think about the last song you heard on a recorded record. If, again, if you're, if you're moving temporally through time here, the last song you heard on a recorded album from John Cale at this moment in time in 1970 was sister Ray. And then the first song you hear, the first song on the next record is Hello There. And there just could not be a more, uh, you know, shocking, striking, and frankly satisfying kind of like vibe shift from where he was to where he is now. I don't think that I've explained Hello There, uh, how it sounds very well, but (laughs) it sounds good. It's fun. He's he's having a great time. Yeah, he's put together a pretty uh, crack band here who called themselves Penguin. Uh, I've come to discover. I didn't know that. Uh, this uh, with this run of things. Yeah, they they kind of like became a band while they were recording with him, with the intention of like going out and doing their own thing after they were recording, uh, and they never really did. Yeah, well, funny. Um, a lot of people at the time, you know, you can imagine the players being like, "Let's hitch our wagon to this guy. He's got it." Yeah, I mean, it was 1970. This guy might might as well have been the next Bob Dylan for all. That's why we have to make this show. <laughs> Uh, the next song is Gideon's Bible. Gideon It, it has like not a lot of plays compared Are you to it on Spotify. Yeah, on Spotify. I mean, Hello no. There has like a million three hundred thousand or something. But like this one's got seven hundred sixteen thousand. Wow! Everyone out there, go and if you're going to listen to it on Spotify, do that. YouTube, Apple, give this man some spins. He deserves it. Gideon's Bible, best song on the record for my money. I agree. Hell <laughs> well, yeah. like, okay. and, and this is a record that has Big White Cloud on it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I mean, look, maybe Big White Cloud is as good as Gideon's Bible. Oh, I mean, I'll there say. are a couple incredible ones. But, gee, there's also Amsterdam. Oh, Amsterdam, come on. Amsterdam, Cleo. Okay, Cleo's not that good. I love Cleo. Uh, but Gideon's Bible, the chorus on this... Absolutely soaring. Huge. And it's so, it's, it's a country song, basically, in, in texture. Yeah, sort of rootsy. It has this theatricality to it that's never corny. It's just self-assured. It's really natural, exactly. He's yeah, just like, it, he knows, like, he knows he's got it, and he's, he's got just... The juice. Yeah, he's got the juice, and he's just able, like, at the first record he puts out... He's yeah. able to know not to spill all the juice. Right. He's got it, and he's going to, like, use gonna it. serve it to you. Yeah. Pour it from the pitcher into your glass very carefully. In- into Maybe a nice glass, yeah. Yeah, nice glass, crystal crystal glass uh, you know, on a napkin or a doily or something. He's going to wipe it off and make sure that you, you have a, a nice, tidy sip. 
Um, What's this song about? <laughs> Let's not go there. How does it sound? What's the singing I, like? Yeah, I mean, I just I, I, that's one of down. the things that I love so much about John is just like the texture of his voice is is really just one of a kind. I think, and you know, obviously loses as well. Bob's obviously. We don't even need to say any more about that. Um, but it's just it's unmistakable that that kind of like there's this reedy nasally tone to it, and yet it's really kind of strong and. Um, uh, it, you know, it sounds like he knows what he's doing with it already at this at this point in 1970. Let me hit you with some lyrics. I don't know if you really thought much about these. I've got it on Genius right in front of me. Holding on with both eyes to things that don't exist, mm-hmm. peering through the cutting wrist at the grand old mother greedy, mm-hmm. rolling out the cotton ship upon the carpet pillow. That's right. Throttling children callously. A messy day with Clancy. Mm-hmm. Gideon lied and Gideon died. The force of China felt. Gideon smiled as Gideon died. The thought of China held. Yeah. So, commercially, <laughs> I have a memory of uh, taking like a singing lesson once, and mm-hmm. the teacher was like, you know, pick a song to sing. Um, you know, maybe something that you would do for an audition. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. Summertime in England. I picked the world's strongest man by by um, Scott Walker. Okay, it's just an equally absurd choice as summertime in England. Well, you know, it's it's a song that's equally absurd as this one to pick. Uh-huh. The, the singing teacher said to me, "Like these lyrics don't make any sense." Right. Like you can't. Like what does what this mean? Like, uh, yeah, like my naked shine like a dime. Uh, take I forget what it, he says some just it's like this song you know and I also am a big Scott Walker fan uh, uh, everyone knows that I guess everyone who's ever drank with me knows that I love Scott Walker and um, this is he's he's coming right out the gate with some some shit like that right yeah like 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 Scott it's very heady stuff uh, very dissimilar from where Lou was at at this moment in time um, well, lyrically, but I mean, that's that's kind of the thing about what we have here. He put all of that avant-garde energy into the lyrics. Right. Everything else about this is is the opposite. It's it feels like a warm bath. Right. Which is what but those lyrics. Which, exactly. Which is why it's so striking. You know, I, I think it could be very easy for you to if you just read those words off the page um, or just hear them sung by any random schmo with any random musical accompaniment. <laughs> or, or heard recited by a, a man with a podcast. Right, exactly. <laughs> to be like, well, what the fuck is going on here? This, uh, you know, this is this has got to be this has got to be shit. This guy's head is up his ass, and it, you just you drop the needle, you press play, and it's just so like it just makes sense. Like it, it it's such a perfect kind of match yeah. between the music, the voice, the lyrics, the spirit, the energy. It's just it's so you know it, it it really is a nice just a nice drink. You know, you're drinking, you just drink this right up. Yeah, I mean that's it's there's a naivety to to John in a way mm-hmm. where he's going he's so inspired by rock music and he's you know he knows everything there is to know about drone and about like the most uh, obscure and you know he literally played an 18 hour concert of like a few notes on the piano yeah, John Cage um and and so he's coming at this definitely having heard Dylan and being like well I like what Dylan's doing with, you know, going electric and, and doing this rock music, but I also like what he's doing lyrically. Right. And whereas Lou was like, 
yeah, I like what Dylan does, but it it's too flowery. He's like, it's a little fruity. <laughs> like I need to like, you know, I mean, Lou in his own way, no, whatever we'll get there <laughs> he uh <laughs> but he he has this uh sort of merciless and you know artistically genius uh brutality with like cut out the fat right get to it and uh john kale is uh, is a bit more of a romantic i think yeah, absolutely he's he's actually attempting to match dylan with the poetic uh thrusts yeah. of these songs yeah in his own in his own own way certainly and and it should be noted like this is really his first effort as a lyricist like he sang on white light white heat obviously you know he did the gift mm-hmm. and he did um uh lady godiva um but not as a poet he's yeah, those already are, written those are poems mostly lou compositions and he might have had some degree of it but like these songs are the first that are all his own kind of yeah poetic or or lyrical kind of contributions himself and it's really again just like really strong like compare this to the first bob record you know <laughs> dylan 60 it's just like it's night and day um he's just out of the out of the gate as an expert I mean, it, it's it goes to show you like what happened, you know, that how much Dylan blasted that door open for for rock music because this wouldn't have been a po- it wouldn't have been possible. So like, Lou, I, I mean, John was getting getting it from both all angles. You know, he was getting thrilled by rock music as a form that's musically compelling, right? And he's also at the same time seeing it explode lyrically and the potential for it to be an artistic medium that way. So he he kind of just like when I say naive, I don't mean it in a bad way. I think that he's fearless. You know, he just jumps into this and he does both. He really goes for both, which is like, come on, man. That's he is the guy who heard Dylan and then was like, I'll have what he's having. Yeah, I'll have what he's having. (laughs) That's the starting point. That's where we go from. And that's that's incredible. I mean, I cannot. and And crucially, he's the one who was good enough to even come close to stand up to it and not just look like a complete asshole. No, I mean, those lyrics, they have a a poetic value to them. That is, stands, you know, maybe to a fault stands on its own as, as good as the, the musicality itself. And that's something obviously John will play with. And, uh, you know, just like any poet, I think will play with, what you can do, what you can get away with, what works for you right. and your sensibility. Yeah, move away from and come back towards and move away, you know, kind of, you know, go in and out throughout uh, throughout the rest of his career. Yeah, trying different modes. And I suppose we should move on because the next Speaking of Bob. Is, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the country aspect of this record is un. un- Denial, it sounds so great. Know, yeah, it's clearly it's clearly the sound of a Welshman, you know, an Englishman, uh, uh, who has fallen in love with the sound of American music. Um, you know, living in America and making American <laughs> music with Americans. You know, it's it's uh, it, it's and it's so funny to see that kind of like filtered back at us as folks who are yeah. you know kind of accustomed to that or you know kind of that's the air that we breathe. <laughs> Probably night in Adelaide 
Yeah, I mean, this song is not, there's not a lot to it. You've got, I want to go home, I want to go home, I want to go back to Adelaide. He succeeds in being young, dumb, and full of cum as he wants to be on this song. You know, it's just, this is this is Midnight Cowboy. Uh, yeah. This is just him, like, strutting around with a, like, a six-foot-four blonde dude just walking around New York with a with a little piece of hay out of his mouth uh-huh. and a, and just the biggest cock in the world <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly what it is oh adelaide adelaide i want you tonight adelaide adelaide i want you tonight yes it's uh this is this is real candy stuff uh big white cloud man what a song Just like the the literal like the um what do they call it like you know the the sound the soundscape the soundstage like soundscape it feels like you're hearing this it feels like you're hearing the song in a huge yeah. room out of enormous speakers just echoing through the entire chamber just and just on your own headphones yeah. and stuff it sounds so like it's carved from Marvel. first record first record he put out you've got this on there. Well, just mass, mass this show. can be the first time on the show that we say what more is there to say because <laughs> really there's not that much more to say about Big White Cloud it speaks for itself it is a gorgeous and perfect song uh, yeah I mean this is this is just where really the the classical training and background that he comes out of I think comes to the forefront because uh, he's clearly just got such a command of the the drum and the way to present the sound um, uh, from the strings to the, the just the striking piano to the easy kind of guitar and drum and then it's like kind of a choral chorus that comes on right like it's just him with the verses and then he brings in sounds like it's him dubbed a couple times as well as a couple other people singing it's just yeah i mean just throw this on there's no there's no question about it it's immediate right off the bat good that's good music folks this is this is maybe some of the goodest music ever made (laughs) if you i mean right here i'm glad that we have like just uh hard evidence right now like this is why we're talking about john kale for uh, potentially another two years or whatever how long it takes However long it oh, takes. Yes, it's, I love it. And it's three and a half minutes. It's just, again, so easy to, to digest. It, it, you know what I mean? It's, it's, mm. it, it's amazing. 
John Cale. Pretty good. Pretty good musician. You like the next song, Cleo? I love the next song, Cleo. Cleo or Cleo? Cleo, Cleo. Won't you come around and play? Uh, well, he says Cleo in the song. Cleo. Uh, but, you know, that might be the Welsh thing. Um, I mean, and, and so this right here, right? Adela- Gideon's Bible into Adelaide, into Big White Cloud, into Cleo is just such a... Such not a, a dud uh, yet. Not a dud yet. And so, so much fun because he's, he's flexing so many different muscles, right? He's got the poetic kind of, you know, uh, behind glass lyricism of Gideon's Bible, the harp blowing, honky-tonk good times of Adelaide, the cinematic... Uh, you know, inspiring masterwork, Big White Cloud. And now he's just like honking away on a little organ and singing about his girlfriend or, you know, someone uh, that he has a crush on or something with Cleo. It's uh, it's so easy to easy to love. Yeah. He never takes himself too seriously on this record. No. And that's something that's really, yes. especially, you know, someone coming from the Velvet Underground, someone who's clearly influenced by Bob Dylan uh, and is, is doing this kind of thing with uh, some degree of well, artistic... Well, Bob doesn't take himself... Well, Bob doesn't, exactly, but so many of Bob's uh, imitators do, and I think that's the key You're so to right. something like this. Well, it's 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 the key to both Lou and John's approach. They're, that's why we're talking about both these guys, is because so many people tried to ape uh, Dylan, tried to copy him, but... Not that many people, very few, understood that what makes Dylan great is that he has this somehow, in in a mysterious way, like the reasons why are very unclear. But he, you could, we could talk about that for hours about why he and how he has this sort of detached sense of humor that permeates everything. Right. I, it probably comes from the uh, his influence of Woody Guthrie. You know, this sort of like um, big picture approach this kind of selfless approach to music writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could go on about that for a while. But uh, John and Lou, they both have that, but it's in a different way. Whereas Lou f- finds humor in cutting stuff away and just getting down true things. And and John Cale is like, I can do something so simple, and yet it's going to be absurd knowing how complicated everything really is right it's like it's almost a punchline like this this musician this like just polymath putting out a song like cleo at this moment in time that just the fact of its existence alone is the joke uh and yet it's so much fun to listen to the joke changes the joke shifts from song to song sometimes the joke is that the lyric is very simple, like with Adelaide. You know, it's like that's kind of silly in a way. It, he, he plays around with that a lot. Big White Cloud is a moment where I think they're in perfect harmony, where it's actually not, he's not being a jokey, but he is being simple, but it's also profound. So he just nails it on every level. But he does right. try it a lot, a lot of different ways. Whereas Lou, he's a little a, more. He's a little more one one lane, one track mind. At least in these early days, it's more commercial a lot of the time too, though, because it, it ends up being like a bit more just like f- uh, memorable because it's so uh, blunt. He's trying to please. Yeah, he's trying to please. He's trying to shock, and John is trying to um, communicate things that are a little bit more beyond that, and then like reel it back he, he's doing a bit more he's dancing around yeah he's juggling a lot he's he's juggling four balls and lou's only got two in there i hear those the dogs are back i hear the dogs 
Every time a dog barks. <laughs> you know that one? Uh, You'll know it soon enough. Every time a dog's bark, like a um, please. So this is just a straight ballad. Yeah. A country a, ballad. Just a beautiful, another beautiful song. It's on that huge, you know, kind of soundstage or soundscape as uh, as Big White Cloud. Not quite as anthemic and just striking, but it has this... Um, has this enormous feel and just man his his singing really like you cannot say enough for it because again like he's only ever sung two songs on record ever up until this point and no, one of the natural. songs is the gift which is not even him singing he's just reciting a bunch of you know well, it's a uh, it's a sto- story a short story yeah that, that Lou wrote um and so it just like it's such uh, a I should say a story Lou wrote very indebted to his mentor Delmore Schwartz Delmore Schwartz uh, but we'll yes, come, we'll come back to Delmar. I, here's uh, something that I think about this song. Please to interrupt you. Sorry. Thank you. But doesn't this remind you of a certain song by Brian Eno lyrically? Uh, Won't you help me, please? Not- I'm growing old. A million years ago. Won't you help me sneeze? I've caught a cold. Another way to go. Right. It reminds me of I'll come running to tie your shoe. It's kind of got this funny whimsy to it, like this. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, it's I mean, no it's, surprise they work together. Yeah, uh, and, you know, clearly I think Eno is indebted to, to Kale, and, um, you know, later on Kale will become indebted back to Eno. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting relationship, just the two of them. Um, yeah, this one is one that is, is a little... It's a little mysterious to me, you know. Um, it gets a little bit lost on the record, but it's not on its own. It's still gorgeous. Uh, no, melody. it's gorgeous, and I love the song. I just like I, I don't know that I'm you know. So many of these songs are so straight and and easy to easy to parse, and this one is just like I I love those lines. Once you help me sneeze, I've caught a cold. Another way to go, but like I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Slowly yeah. in the mist of captive eyes to carry you from home, handsome cab again from dawn till dusk, my power amphibious bride. You know we're my <laughs> we're, power we're not operating on uh, on Cleo levels here. My my power amphibious bride, and it doesn't need to make you know kind of literal sense all the time. I, you know that's something that we come back to, or uh, you know uh, often on the show is just like the 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 way something is presented, the way that the music sounds, the way that the the singer uh, you know sounds delivering the vocals, like it makes a degree of emotional sense. Um, regardless of whether or not you know you can kind of compute the exact literal meaning from black words on a white page you can see so much in the personality difference between lou and john here if you just think about how they approach lyrics uh right. especially at this stage because it's like lou is is so i mean <laughs> uh, i mean so i don't stupid yeah but he's not stupid <laughs> but i i mean personally i mean i'm gonna get in trouble because i have harsh opinions about a certain record but i feel like some of the stupider songs that lou ever wrote are ones where he's trying to be poetic in this way 
Right, yeah, when I say lose stupid, like I mean that as a compliment base. Like he knows he he knows what he's doing. When he does and, and that's something that a lot of people don't understand about Lou Reed, I think, is that like as he got older, he realized, "Oh, I shouldn't try to be this way. I shouldn't try to be John Cale." I'm not, it's funny that he's competing, you know, with songs like Ocean, it's like. I like Ocean. I mean, it's fine. It's good. It's better than most people can do. But what Lou can do, what his real skill is, is not that, you know. I see what you mean. Yeah, he's not, that's not a Lou Reed kind of song necessarily. That's not him operating in his own um, metier. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, I guess it makes sense, a little bit like trying to be competitive with John Cale. And John Cale is trying to compete with himself. To a degree, yeah. I, I think that at least here initially, and this is, again, uh, part of the reason that it's so interesting and uh, for for us to sort of juxtapose these two against one another, I feel like initially, these first couple of years, John is just, like, doing his thing. He's, like, off on his own. And Lou, I think, takes a little bit of time to get going. He's sort of searching for something. And, you know, we'll get we'll get into that on the, on the Lou episode uh, coming shortly here. But... Um, uh, you know, I, I think right off the bat, John is just kind of starting out on a stronger foot. And those roles are going to switch, you know, time and time again throughout their career. It's going to go back and forth all the time. Yeah. And, you know, and, and what is so fun is the way that they kind of intersect with each other, obviously, most notably with Drella, but also with the Velvet Underground reunion uh, and, you know, just kind of other points the way their records kind of wink at each other or respond to things that the other one has done in the past. Or flip each other off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess this part of the record, Charlemagne is the next song. Charlemagne, you know, it, uh, this one, bit, bit of a drag, uh, as far as anything on the record it, goes. Yeah, it gets lost, but it's still quite good. I mean, I don't want to say anything against it. Yeah, certainly not. No, I mean, I, I, I think that it's, um, uh, I don't know that I would call it filler, but I, I think it is something no, that it just not, sort yeah, of like, filler. you know, it's not it's not what I'm here for this, What it's not what I'm here for on this record. That said, I'm sure there are a lot of people who do come to this record for this kind of thing. Um but definitely a little more dramatic, a little more... Uh, this, this one really feels like he's trying to be, art, you know, quote-unquote artistic, quote-unquote, you know, poetic. Um, and I, I like it a little bit more when he just kind of naturally eases into that mode instead of really, you know, uh, gearing up for, for this kind of big dramatic moment. Um, bring it on up. Rootin' tootin'. Having fun. Rock and roll, baby. <laughs> Just calling the song Bring It On Up. Bring It On Up. <laughs> Bring It On Up. Hi, I'm John Kale. I'm here to tell you about my new song, Bring It On Up. Yeah. Every part is praying for the rains to come. And the snow's gonna fall down on me. Lost out in the desert with a 
it's so funny how all of these just like little Nevishy goons, Bob Dylan from fucking Minnesota. Yeah, uh, Nevishy? Uh, Are you doing tropes? Well, Are you doing tropes? Right hey, listen, John is uh, he's, he's an Anglican. But they, they all have this obsession with be, just being a fucking cowboy at this moment in time. It's just that, that uh, you know, that archetype casts a long shadow <laughs> over the 20th century. The, the, Lou never really went cowboy. Uh, no, but he did something else. You know, he, yeah. we'll get into that, what he did. Um, but John is not Jewish, we should stress. Uh, you know, and, and it, like I, uh, I don't know they don't, they don't have Jews over there in England. There's just... <laughs> They do. <laughs> There's just a different uh, type of humor that exists for the Jews and the Gentiles, you know, and mm. and Lou's type of humor way more Jewish. You know, he's like a Catskills comedian, sort of like doing yeah. crowd work. But a very yeah, very different kind of Jewish humor than Bob's Jewish humor. And the humor of John Cale is more like Andy Kaufman or something. <laughs> okay. a, a Jew. So I mean, I've deleted my point from being. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this song is literally apparently set in the old old west. Yeah, he loves that. Started long ago in my paper cup saloon. Time to get the wagon in the back of the car with the sheriff and me singing out a key. Sooner than the, than later, I was up behind bars with that empty bowl laughing right at me. You know, he's he's having fun here. He's on the horse. He's wearing the, the spurs. Yeah, this is like Chugold John. Bring it on! Up. It sounds like the band. <laughs> it really kind of does, yeah, like cahoots or something like that. Yeah, it's. it's I, I don't know that there's that much to dive into. Not much to worry about there. Just, you know, it's fun. It's good music. But the next song, however, comes out of Ooh, nowhere baby. and it's just like, you. it makes you go, you sit right down, wipes the smile off your face. Nothing funny about this song. Yeah, well, it puts a smile right back on your face because it's so beautiful. But, you know, it's also very sad. Um, puts a smile in. Uh, Makes me sad, but it makes me smile. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, it's sad in a good way. You know, he's he's achieving what he's trying to do with this song. We can say it's the smile that you smile at a at a dog who's very old, a three legged dog. Yeah, yeah. This is a uh, Amsterdam. Amsterdam. example of an early John ballad of of lost or compromised love and it's um so intimate and clear you know it's 
it's it's just a beautiful melody. Come down, come down. Ah, oh, man. Yeah, it's really incredible. And I like what I love about this song is I mean, all of it, uh, just right off the bat, but something that's so striking with this song, and you really get this with John, is, and this is something that I think we're going to get to learn a little bit more here, is Bob, as we know, you know, not really, uh, not really a production kind of guy, not really a studio wizard type of fella, and, and Lou, honestly, a little bit more than Bob, but, you know, not, not much more, certainly in the earlier days of his career, John knows what he's doing in the recording studio um and so a song like this sounds so simple and and so plain and and straightforward and really it is it's just him singing accompanying himself on the acoustic guitar but there are these minor touches and and what i think is like so brilliant for this is like when he gets to the chorus there are he dubs himself there you know there are two vocal tracks that are slightly out of sync and he's kind of duetting with himself and and you can hear the fact that there are these two separate vocal tracks running and then as soon as you get back to the verse that goes away and he's just back to single solo and it's just such a light touch such a minor thing but it really kind of Mm. like I I realized coming back to this record this time that that really that's what does it for me like that that really kind of grabs my heart and and, and yeah I think that's Um, that's telling of the level that he's thinking on in terms of a poetic approach to this music that he understands that those choices matter, you know, alone right. versus with a little bit of uh, support. And the way the song ends, you know, just elegant, a beautiful song. And one that he'll show that he can do that again because, uh, you know, Close yeah. Watch, we'll get to. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, all of um, uh, New Society, basically. And, yeah, if, if you were still around. I mean, he is, I, I'm not being hyperbolic. John, John Cale's written some of the, finest love songs of all time yeah i don't think that i'm even being silly or like provocative saying that there's a reason why his cover of hallelujah is so popular is because he's who should sing that he's he's one of the few people who gets to cover that and have it be uh not hornball (laughs) he covers it because he can do that thing too he can do it justice yeah Yes, I do believe the journey did her Uh, on the note of uh, listening to John Cale music, I've noticed a lot of it not on Spotify. So folks out there, you might need to do a little digging uh, if you want to keep up with us, if you haven't familiarized yourself with the entire discography or already torrented it. So Yeah, uh, Oniswa, not on Spotify, and it may or may not be because of that song where he screams the N-word. Well. <laughs> In context, uh, you know, it's not, um, I don't know what the context of that get, song exactly is, but we're gonna it does happen. What is, <laughs> you know, it, it's. Uh, don't scare everyone off. In, in I really episode. don't want to do that. I, I know that it's, uh, you just got to understand that he has a poetic reason for doing that. 
Lou's, Lou's got some skeleton in his closet uh, uh, along those lines as well. <laughs> I Want to Be Black, a song that's just on Spotify. Okay. Uh, yeah, what very a song. hidden skeleton um, in his closet. Ghost Story, this is, um, uh, this is a, a haunted mansion uh, if it were a song. Uh, you know, we, we talked a lot about a different Nintendo game Jesus on the last version of this show. And I think now, it, actually, there's a, a sort of reason, this being the first, to bring up a different uh, sort of a, 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 a change of scenery for one of our classic characters from Nintendo. And uh, that uh-huh. would be the Luigi's Mansion type of song. Of course. And this is the first example of that. You're very pleased with yourself. This song is sort of how when Luigi was uh, invited to that mansion, he had to take care of some ghosts with that. You know, just, just like Mario and having that backpack with the water. Luigi yeah, had a backpack the, the that was that also talked to him, I believe. Uh, when, it was sort of a ghost right? vacuum. So, you know... Th- yeah. <laughs> This is like that, you know, ghost story. That's sort of the John Kell's Luigi's Mansion. Okay. Uh, this song rocks. The organ rocks. It'll haunt you for the rest of your life. Uh, and again production wise drama wise the way that it just fucking ends at the end just cuts off makes you think that your airpods cut out or like your needle got fucked on if you're listening to it on a on a record player so good love it yeah ambitious kind of proggy song john kale's luigi's mansion uh, luigi's mansion yeah fairweather friend wrapping it up with back. just kind of a bop. Yeah, really just kind of back to back to the start. This is the closest thing bum, to Hello There bum. on the record, I think. He's just kind of rocking along. Yeah. Great stuff. It's great. Um, we didn't talk about the cover. We're doing these episodes by uh, also uh, should be uh, apparent to people now. Uh, no more yeah, side we're just A, B running for, through. for most of the records, at least. Uh, you know, sometimes I'm sure for the big ones we'll we'll split them up into two. But you know, for most of the records, it's you know one record, one episode. You get it. So Garland Jeffries, words and music. Fairweather friend. So uh, oh, here's okay. an example of us not knowing something. <laughs> Garland Jeffries, American singer-songwriter. here on the um, show, folks. So blues and soul songwriter. Bored boy, Fantastic. bored boy. Don't know what that really means. Bored boy. You know, not too much to worry about. Just having a good time. Rocking and rolling. You could say that Amsterdam is kind of the last real song on this record. Then you get Ghost Story as sort of like a treat, and this is the encore. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's it's just a great little way to... It's, you know what this is? This is the cherry on top. Yeah. It's got to be that. It's a little maraschino. You it's pop going, it in, tie a little... He's going, look, I, I can be an American... I can be an American singer-songwriter. I can do whatever those people can do. I love that music and I care about it. So I'm going to do it on my record. The cadence of your speech on my rec- always seems to, to pick up when you're doing John. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's uh, an do. affectation. <laughs> I don't know. I, somebody said I sounded like Robin Williams, but I, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I, 
I don't uh, that you know it hurt my feelings a little bit, yeah, but yeah. like, uh, well, I I'm sort of basing it on you know I'm basing it on John Gale how <laughs> I've heard him speak at times. There was a period where he talked very fast. Well, <laughs> for reasons that we won't get yeah, into. There was a period when a lot of people talked really fast. Um, we didn't get to talk about the cover though. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it's John Cale wearing the mask from <laughs> Ronaldo and Clara. <laughs> uh, the plastic masks very end during this moment in time. Everyone just looked like he, an absolute he, freak. He's, uh, he's got turf bangs. Yes, <laughs> he really does. Uh, he's got like a, a circa 2015 uh, Tumblr haircut. Mm-hmm. Um, and just very he disturbing looks like looking eyes. He looks like he's in Crystal Castles. He's got uh, just a clear mask on his face, so you can't really see his pretty face. Sort of hard to see, at least in the picture that I'm looking at online, but I've got the LP right here. Very pink, like almost like ham, almost like the color of a ham, huh. his skin yeah, in you reality. Know, it's in, when you look at that cover in physical form, it, it, in the, this book I have, uh, Sedition and Alchemy by Tim Mitchell, a biography of John Cale. It's quite good. They des- he describes that cover as ghoulish, and I didn't know what he meant until you showed me it in person, because it does look like a, f- a giant, Very just a <laughs> sick, wet ham. Very disturbing. With, like, two, two dark black eyes God, yeah, peeking through Yeah, the eyes are just, the only thing that isn't behind a mask on the entire, yeah, it's, it's very funny that this is the and cover for this text album. On Beautiful the, font. On the, for, forehead John Cale Vintage Violence great title I mean it's just he was um, you know the, like the truth is this could have been probably a minor hit if he had just even tried right. to not be to not make uh, himself <laughs> but this is a man who is not going to not be himself he's gonna follow and, his yeah and that is what we love about John Cale that is why we're talking about him that's why you should listen to his music because too many people bend and break to the pressures of the market. John Cale is, uh, you know, speaking of that biography, mm-hmm. I, I would like to read something from the foreword. Bring it on home. In fact, Bring it on up. should I just read the whole foreword? It's pretty good. This is a foreword by Gruff Reese from the book that I just mentioned. At the age of 13... I was sifting through the pile of records that had accumulated at the side of the family record player when a mysterious new LP caught my attention. My brother's friend had forgotten to take his copy of the Velvet Underground's White Light, White Heat home with him. I stuck it on the deck, and on hearing that Garnet Lower East Side accent on the John Cale narrated The Gift, I instantly concluded that this must be a contemporary Southwest post-punk act. Finding the Velvet Underground opened up a whole new world of East Coast junkie music to me, which I adopted as my own. The implausibility of such an important figure in contemporary music as John Cale, coming from the modest industrial village of Garnet, apart from giving me a great encouragement, confirms to me that often the places that are regarded as peripheral are actually bang in the middle. Likewise, while John Cale's contribution to music has often been unacknowledged while it is being made, time has consistently been kind to his output as a musician and producer. Today, records by the likes of the Velvet Underground, the Stooges, Nick Drake, Hattie Smith, Nico, and the Happy Mondays, which hardly set the world alight when they were released, are considered era-defining and have become hugely influential. 
Meanwhile, the trajectory of Kale's solo career observed today seems like a roadmap of current musical territory where the Beach Boys, punk rock, and the avant-garde live side by side in perfect harmony. Time and crystal clear production values have given his solo recordings an incredible timeless quality. Working with him during the filming of 2000's Beautiful Mistake as he was composing his song Things, I noticed that he seemed to have an iron vision that would not bend. This is a quality that may explain his volatile relationship with another tough guy, Lou Reed. Working on our own furry animal song, Presidential Suite, however, he was determined to take a back seat and make sure that all decisions came from us, or at least making them seem to. In this context, he dubbed himself Musical Janitor, a stance that may explain his skills in coaxing individual musical interpretations out of a variety of people. Somewhere within this musical duality lies the key to unraveling the life and purpose of this most unorthodox, uncompromising, and enigmatic individual who has been traveling into what seems to be a parallel musical future to the rest of us over the past half century, and who has, in the process, become a quiet giant of our time. There you go. Quiet giant. I think that's a great way to phrase it. John Cale. Enormous significance, enormous artistic achievements, hidden behind a very creepy plastic mask gazing at you from the darkness with a really shitty haircut. Three stars. Yeah, three stars. This one gets three stars. Out of three, if you're new here. (laughs) Joker, man. 